Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, featuring your host, Anna Jaworski. Our program is a program designed to empower the CHD or congenital heart defect community. Our program may also help families who have children who are chronically ill by bringing information and encouragement to you in order to become an advocate for your community. Now, here is Anna Jaworski. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of Heart to Heart with Anna. We are in season nine and the theme this season is advancements in congenital heart disease. Our show today is advancements in understanding the liver in Fontan patients. And our guest is Dr. Fred Wu. Dr. Wu is board certified in pediatrics, internal medicine, and cardiovascular disease. After receiving his Doctor of Medicine degree from the University of Michigan Medical School in Ann Arbor, he completed a combined residency program in pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Minnesota Medical Center and a fellowship in cardiovascular disease, also at the University of Minnesota. In 2007, he completed an advanced fellowship in adult congenital heart disease and pulmonary hypertension at Harvard Medical School and stayed on to become a faculty member of the Boston Adult Congenital Heart and Pulmonary Hypertension Program. Dr. Wu has received a Santa Fe Adventist Fellow Travel Award for Research, a teaching award from the Harvard Medical School Academy Center for Teaching and Learning Excellence, and grant funding through Boston Children's Hospital's Innovation and Digital Health Accelerator for research into innovative approaches to the management of patients with single ventricle physiology. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. Wu. Thanks, Anna. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Well, I'm excited to have you on the program. So let's start by having you explain why Fontan patients are at risk for developing liver issues. Sure. So as many of your listeners will know, the Fontan operation is done in patients who only have one ventricle that's developed enough to support the circulation. So because that one ventricle is needed to pump the blood to the body and to supply all of the vital organs, the surgeons take the two main veins that carry all of the used blood back to the heart to be pumped through the lungs, and they attach those directly to the pulmonary arteries so that the used blood flows into the lungs without going through a pumping chamber first. So because of that arrangement, the blood pressure in the veins after Fontan operation is much higher than is normal in somebody with two functional ventricles. So because the liver is the last organ that most of your blood passes through before it returns to the heart, and because the liver is sort of a spongy organ, the increase in venous blood pressure causes the liver to get congested. And over many years, that congestion causes scarring or fibrosis in the liver. When you only have one ventricle instead of two, it creates some limitation to the amount of blood that the heart can circulate. And in situations where your body has compromised circulation, it often sacrifices blood flow to the gut and the liver in favor of the other organs. So given those two factors, it's not hard to see why liver disease is such a common problem in the Fontan circulation compared to other types of heart disease. 
Wow, that's the most comprehensive explanation I've ever heard of why they could have a problem. So it would seem to me that universally, people with a single ventricle heart who have had a Fontan operation will suffer from some kind of liver disease. Yeah, I think that's true. And that's pretty much borne out in most of the research studies that we've done. Most of the studies have shown that the vast majority of patients, if not all of them, have some degree of liver injury when we do studies like CT scanning or liver biopsy. Well, that's kind of scary. When you're told that your child is born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome, like I was, we were told about the three surgeries that he would probably need, but nobody said anything about the fact that those surgeries, which save his life, might also cause liver problems. Yeah, you know, what I do for a living, which is taking care of adults with congenital heart disease, is really the result of a lot of successes in the field of caring for people with congenital heart disease. So as you know, the Fontan operation was something that wasn't done until the 70s. So we really don't have a lot of long-term experience with people who had the Fontan operation. So we're really learning more and more as patients who've had the Fontan operation get older. So as you know, there really weren't a lot of people with complex heart disease, like single ventricle physiology, that were living to adulthood back 50 years ago, but now we have a lot of Fontan patients who are in their 40s and 50s, people that are raising families of their own. And having gone through 30 to 40 years with the Fontan circulation, we're just now learning the sorts of things that can develop in other organs and people who've had the Fontan operation. So a lot of this is still a learning process for us. And without having that experience, we don't really know how to counsel people on what's going to happen to these patients in the very long term. Well, that's good to know that it's not like they were trying to withhold information from me or from any of my friends, but just that it wasn't known. And it's exciting to me to live in a day and age where I can see so many long-term survivors. It must be exciting for you, too. It is, and that's really what makes our job very rewarding. You know, again, a lot of these patients come to us with stories, like you told me earlier, where their parents were told that they should just take their child home and love them until they died. Or in some cases, you know, patients were told that they weren't allowed to exercise or participate in gym class with other kids. And really what we're finding now is that even with complex heart disease, after having gone through an operation like the Fontan, most of these kids really live very normal lives and will grow up to have fairly normal lives as adults as well. We just have to be aware of the possible complications and maintain an appropriate level of surveillance to look for the complications that we know are likely to happen. Right, right. I have had some friends whose children have developed protein-losing enteropathy, or PLE. Is this a result of liver damage? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that I hear a lot. There's actually probably multiple processes that contribute to the development of protein-losing enteropathy after the Fontan operation, but it probably isn't a direct consequence of the liver damage. Instead, they probably have some common mechanisms. So PLE, as you know, is a condition where protein-rich fluid leaks into the gut, and that can cause low levels of protein in the blood, it can cause swelling in the legs or other soft tissues, and it can cause diarrhea and other GI symptoms. The high vein pressures and the compromised blood flow that also cause injury to the liver probably play an important role in the development of PLE. And there's also some evidence for an inflammatory component, which may or may not contribute to the liver disease as well. So most of the current treatments for PLE are focused on reducing the pressure in the Fontan system, improving the circulation of the heart, and then reducing inflammation as well. Well, that's really good to know because, if I'm not mistaken, there are also people who don't have a Fontan physiology who can develop PLE. In fact, I have a friend whose son passed away at 
a very young age. I think it was 10 or 11 years old. And they were afraid that it was the kind of heart defect he had that had caused the PLE. And so they ended up doing a heart transplant. But sadly, even though he got a new heart, he still had the PLE and ended up passing away because of it. Yeah, PLE is something that has been described in people with inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's disease. So there are multiple things that can cause the same type of problem. So anything that causes leakiness of the gut wall, which typically includes some kind of inflammatory process, can cause the blood vessels to get leaky and allow protein to leak out into that space. In the case of people with heart disease, not just Fontan circulation, but any type of heart failure, really, the increased pressure in the veins also sort of forces fluid through the wall of the vessels, and that contributes to the leakiness of the gut as well. So just because somebody has PLE certainly doesn't mean that they have congenital heart disease. Usually, if people are developing PLE because of other causes, there's going to be other symptoms that will point the doctor in the direction of what the underlying etiology really is. Fortunately, in the case of congenital heart disease, in most cases, when people do get PLE, it's already known that they have congenital heart disease. Generally, they're going to have other symptoms of heart failure as well, such as fluid retention, shortness of breath, and things like that. So PLE is rarely the presenting cause for congenital heart disease. And, And like you say, there are lots of different things that can cause PLE as well. Well, what are the signs and symptoms a patient may exhibit to alert a parent or the patient's doctors that there may be some liver problems occurring? Well, that's the difficulty of managing the liver in Fontan circulation. Generally, when we as doctors or the lay public think of people with liver disease such as cirrhosis, we usually picture someone who's had alcoholic cirrhosis or hepatitis, and we think of somebody who has yellow skin, which we call jaundice, or yellow eyes, which we call icterus, or a swollen abdomen because of fluid buildup or ascites. So while cardiologists are finding that most, if not all, people with Fontan circulation have evidence of liver disease when we do the blood testing or liver imaging, most of these patients have few, if any, symptoms. So that's why the onus is really on the primary care doctors and the cardiologists and the liver specialists who are taking care of these people to monitor for signs of liver disease because they almost never come to you and present with those symptoms themselves. That's really helpful to know, and it's also really scary because there aren't any huge red flags that are alerting people that they probably need to be tested. That's right, and I do have to point out that many of the patients and parents that I talk to often come because they've heard or they've read about cirrhosis and liver disease and Fontan circulation, and sometimes they're quite alarmed by it. And What I always tell patients is that What we call cirrhosis or liver disease in the Fontan population is probably a different animal than the cirrhosis that we see in alcohol use and hepatitis. So again, with alcohol and hepatitis, we often see people presenting with these signs of liver failure, which include varicose veins in the esophagus or the jaundice or ascites that we talked about. But in Fontan patients, those symptoms are very uncommon. Generally, patients have other symptoms that are related to the heart disease, but few, if anything, that are directly related to the liver. And part of the difficulty, too, is that there is some overlap between symptoms of liver failure and heart failure. So in both heart failure and liver failure, you can get the buildup of fluid in the belly that we call ascites, and you can get swelling in the legs that we call edema. And sometimes it can be hard to tease out how much of that is because of their heart disease and how much is because of their liver disease. And the other thing, too, is that when people think about liver disease or cirrhosis in 
adults who are getting cirrhosis because of other problems, oftentimes there's a very poor prognosis. Whereas in the Fontan population, even though we tend to see liver involvement at a very early age, in many cases, it doesn't necessarily impact the long-term outcomes of these patients. So they don't necessarily develop the morbidity and it doesn't necessarily contribute to their mortality in the long term. It does have some very important ramifications as far as how we treat these patients and what their treatment options are in the future. And so that's why it's important for us to keep an eye on it and make sure that it doesn't progress to a point where it does become symptomatic. But again, it's certainly not something that should be alarming to patients. It's something that people should be aware of, and they should make sure that their doctor knows that they need to look out for these sorts of things and to monitor their liver health. Well, that just made me feel a million times better. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, I have a son who has a single ventricle heart, and there hasn't been much done regarding his liver, aside from his cardiologist knowing that it's not exactly like other people's livers who don't have congenital heart disease. But he hasn't had some of the testing that I was afraid maybe he should have had already. So you make me feel a lot better. He doesn't have any of the symptoms, like you said, and so he does have a great quality of life. I just want to see that continue. So Hi, I'm John Montez of NBC's hit acapella show, The Sing-Off. In acapella music, it takes a team to create a sound that many will enjoy, just like it'll take a team to help my good friend Miles Schweitzer, an HLHS survivor. Let's help Miles fulfill his dream and make a big enough sound to bring awareness to congenital heart disease. Please visit him at GoFundMe.com backwards slash The Miles Project. Miles with the Y. Again, that's GoFundMe.com, The Miles Project. This is for Miles. When I saw so many of these CHG groups growing, I found family just ready to join me. Anyone who is a member of the adult congenital heart defect community can be a guest on our show. We have a great year planned, and we look forward to sharing other interesting topics Heart to Heart with Nicole and David, serving the ACHD community, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. That's Anna at Heart to Heart with Anna.com. Now, Back to Heart to Heart with Anna. So, Dr. Wu, what exactly is liver surveillance? By liver surveillance, we really just mean periodic evaluation of liver health as opposed to waiting until somebody shows up with obvious liver problems. And how would they have their liver assessed? Well, that's a good question. So, in general, there's consensus among congenital heart disease doctors that liver surveillance should be performed as a matter of routine, but how to do it and when to start doing it isn't entirely clear. Certainly at every clinic visit, the doctor should be asking about symptoms such as abdominal distension, yellow skin, yellow eyes, or any history of coughing or vomiting up blood. Those are obviously pretty significant things that most patients would bring to you if it happened anyway. As part of the physical exam, in addition to listening to your heart, the doctor should be examining the belly to see if the liver is enlarged or tender or if the belly is distended and full of fluid. Blood tests are relatively inexpensive and easy to do, but for the most part, they tend to remain normal even when imaging or liver biopsy shows significant fibrosis in the liver. So 
even though blood tests are an important part of the surveillance, in and of themselves, they're probably not enough for screening for liver health. As far as imaging studies, the main modalities that we use are ultrasound, CT, and MRI. Most doctors like to do ultrasound first because it's readily available, because it's relatively inexpensive, and because it doesn't use any radiation. However, it's relatively insensitive and sometimes misses things like nodules, especially when there's a background of diffuse liver disease, which is typically what we see in people who've had Fontan operation. A CT and MRI give us a very detailed picture of the liver, and they're probably the best way to monitor the liver, especially in Fontan patients. We generally prefer MRI because it doesn't involve any radiation. So for patients that are needing to get MRI on a regular basis, you don't get that constant exposure to radiation that can cause problems in the long term. But a lot of patients who have pacemakers or defibrillators can't go into the MRI scanner. So for those individuals, we would tend to use CT scanning instead. Now, both CT and MRI involve different types of IV contrast, and they give us more detailed information. But in both cases, the contrast might not be suitable if the patient has kidney disease. So most experts advocate baseline liver testing using blood tests and liver imaging starting at about five years after the Fontan is completed. And although individual providers may choose to start a little earlier or a little bit later, we encourage doing the test annually and imaging every three to five years. By 15 years after the Fontan, we feel that the patients are probably at higher risk. So at that point, the liver has been subject to many more years of high venous pressures, and we recommend more frequent imaging probably every two to three years. That's the most specific answer I've heard regarding that question that I just asked you. So that was really, really helpful to me. Now, my son had his Fontan when he was an infant. He was not even a year old, and so he's almost 22 years post-Fontan, but he had to have a Fontan revision. Does that play into the years that you would calculate, or do you start from that first Fontan? What Was your son's initial Fontan an atrial pulmonary Fontan, do you know? He had the intracardiac. He had a fenestrated Fontan. Oh, I see. Yeah, some people undergo Fontan conversion or Fontan revision because there may be areas that become narrow after the initial Fontan is done or because they had an older style Fontan and we want to update it to a newer style Fontan that may have fewer complications in, in certain respects. Generally, once the Fontan is done, regardless of the type of Fontan that it is, then the liver is already exposed to those higher venous pressures. So even if somebody goes through a second Fontan operation later on, their liver has already been exposed to so many years of high pressures and the injury to the liver has probably already started. Most of the time we do a Fontan conversion or Fontan revision, we're actually improving the hemodynamics. So if anything, that actually takes some of the stress off of the liver. But regardless of the Fontan revision or Fontan conversion that we do, in the end, as long as you have a Fontan circulation, there's still high venous pressures and the liver does still get exposed to that and there is still ongoing liver injury. Well, that's exactly what I would expect. I've been doing a lot of reading in preparation for our program today and I read about blood tests and MRIs and ultrasounds, but I also read about something called an alpha-fetoprotein test. Oh, yes. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, the alpha-fetoprotein is, is not a cardiac test. It's, it's a tumor marker for liver cancer. And most commonly, it's ordered by liver doctors who are taking care of people with cirrhosis because traditionally, it has been one of the ways that they use to screen people for development of liver cancer. 
Now, in most people, liver cancer is a very rare phenomenon, and it's almost entirely restricted to people who have cirrhosis because of alcohol exposure or hepatitis C, or people that have a hepatitis B infection because the hepatitis B virus itself is a carcinogen. In people with Fontan circulation, we have seen some cases of liver cancer developing, and we feel that it's probably tied to the severity of liver disease. So it's something that most of us don't check routinely in patients who've had a Fontan operation until they've been at least 15 years out from Fontan completion. That will vary from center to center. Generally, I think what we like to do at Boston Children's Hospital is when we do imaging of the liver, once we see evidence of more advanced liver disease, then we'll refer to a liver doctor for regular imaging and alpha fetoprotein to screen for the development of liver cancer, what they call hepatocellular carcinoma. This is a lot to take in. Yeah, it's certainly something that most patients and families find a little bit daunting when we first bring it up. I think the words cirrhosis and cancer and hepatocellular carcinoma are certainly very scary things. But again, I want to emphasize that hepatocellular carcinoma is a relatively uncommon thing. So although it's been reported in the literature, most centers probably only have had two to three cases of hepatocellular carcinoma out of a couple of hundred or more Fontan patients that they're following. So it really is a small minority where this develops. But just like any other cancer, you want to screen and try to pick these up at a relatively early stage when we still have more treatment options and the potential for cure is highest. In hepatocellular carcinoma, generally when you see it, just cutting out the cancer is not a good long-term cure because what it tells us is that the underlying liver parenchyma, the underlying liver tissue is diseased enough that the patient is at risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. So What we learn from people who have cirrhosis because of alcohol or hepatitis is if you cut out that hepatocellular carcinoma, if you cut out the liver cancer, the likelihood of another liver cancer developing in the next five years is quite high. And that probably holds true for the Fontan circulation too. If you develop liver cancer once, you're probably at higher risk of developing it again. So usually when we find somebody who has a liver cancer, we may do surgery or we may do an ablation to get rid of the tumor at that time. But that changes the long-term course of treatment for the patient because ultimately what we want to do from that point on is usually to do a heart-liver transplant and basically get rid of the diseased liver so that they don't have that likelihood of getting another liver cancer. Now, one thing that we're still trying to figure out is once you fix the heart, so if you were to do a heart transplant but you left the liver alone, We don't know if taking away that high venous pressure and the compromised cardiac output will allow the liver to heal over time. In general, when people have cirrhosis or fibrosis of the liver, we presume that the fibrosis is permanent. It's not reversible. But there have been some cases more recently of other kinds of liver disease where once people get rid of the underlying problem, whether it's inflammation or infection or whatnot, that the liver fibrosis will actually seem to improve. So there may be some reversibility there that we weren't aware of before. So that's obviously a very important point because if it turns out that doing a heart transplant will allow the liver to heal and for some of that fibrosis to reverse, then there would be less of an impetus to do a heart and liver transplant. But right now, most people would say that once a Fontan patient gets liver cancer, the best treatment is to get both a heart and a liver transplant at the same time. I know that's a lot of information. 
it's a lot of information. It's also daunting because just thinking about getting one organ transplanted is scary enough. But the thought of having to wait for two organs, and I imagine you would want to do them both at the same time, so you'd have to find a donor that's suitable. I mean, what is the likelihood that you can get a liver and a heart at the same time? I think that's a very good question, and, and obviously, having any kind of transplant is a stressful enough thing to have to go through. Thinking about getting a multiple organ transplant, I think, is even more stressful for the patient. The good news is that, in the limited research that we have, when we do a combined heart and liver transplant, the outcomes for the patients tend to be about as good as doing a heart transplant alone. So a heart liver transplant is not something that we tend to do a lot of. If you look back in the UNOS database, so UNOS is United Network of Organ Sharing. So the United Network of Organ Sharing is what regulates the allocation of organs in the United States, and they do keep very good records. According to their records, over the past five years or so, there have been three to four combined heart liver transplants specifically for congenital heart disease each year. So it's not a lot. Wow. Yeah, that's really, really small. Right. And most of those happen in a relatively small handful of centers because you don't want a center that doesn't do a lot of combined transplants to do them because their outcomes aren't going to be as good. So centers like the Mayo Clinic or the University of Pennsylvania in, in Philadelphia tend to do a lot more than most centers. And their experience generally shows that outcomes tend to be about as good for the combined transplants as people who are getting heart transplant only. The downside, as you point out, is that when you have to wait for two organs, it does tend to make the time on the wait list a little bit longer. And there's also an increased chance that you'll wait on the list and never get organs before something bad happens, like if the patient, God forbid, should pass away. Right, right. Or if one of the other organs should become compromised because you're waiting. Right. And that's actually something that we have had problems with in the past, and that sort of changed how we approach patients now. So 10 years ago, you know, a lot of the patients that we would send to the transplant team for consideration for transplant would be refused transplant because they had too much liver disease or because they had too much kidney disease. So I think we've been a lot more proactive with what we've learned to monitor for kidney health and liver health and to try to refer those patients to the heart transplant people before they have other organ disease that would make them a poor candidate for transplant. Well, that's good to know. And I think that's one of the most important reasons to have this liver surveillance, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons why we need to do it. You don't want to wait until a patient is too far gone before you send them, because by that point, obviously, their options are going to be fewer. Right. The most common themes that I hear is why. She always needed um, a lot of attention. She had strokes. Even though it's a natural inclination to withdraw from the CHD community, I think being a part of it to help me be part of the solution. Heart to Heart with Michael. Please join us every Thursday at noon Eastern. I'm Michael Lieben, and I'll be your host as we talk with people from around the world who have experienced those most difficult moments. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. That's Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. 
Dr. Wu, Fontan adults differ from center to center or even from doctor to doctor regarding who is getting screened and when they have their baseline information done. Why do you think it varies so much? Well, there's still a lot that we have to learn about liver health in Fontan adults. As a result, it's been very difficult to issue any guidelines to the congenital heart disease community that are backed up by strong evidence. So I can give you one example. In the past 10 years, practice even among individuals is constantly shifting. So when we first realized that people with Fontan circulation were being diagnosed frequently as having cirrhosis in Boston, we began performing pretty routine liver biopsies. So any patient that had abnormalities on their blood tests or patients who had evidence of more advanced fibrosis on their CT scans or MRIs would undergo a liver biopsy. And within a couple of years, we were basically seeing that almost every single patient had scarring or fibrosis of the liver to some degree. Yet when we went back afterwards and reviewed over 70 liver biopsies that we had done, we weren't able to correlate the degree of scarring with how the patients did in the long term. In other words, the patients that had more severe scarring or more severe fibrosis didn't necessarily get sicker or die sooner than the patients that seemed to have milder fibrosis. On top of that, we also realized that scarring in the Fontan liver tends to be a patchy process, so that called into question how accurate the liver biopsy was. Depending on where the needle ended up, you could potentially get a piece of relatively healthy tissue, or you could get into an area that was relatively severely diseased, and we weren't sure that the liver biopsy was actually giving us an accurate assessment of overall liver health. So as a result... In the course of 10 years, we started doing a lot more liver biopsies, and now we've really backed off on doing liver biopsy, with the exception of doing biopsy on suspicious nodules that we might find on CT or MRI of the liver. So it seems to me then, because we didn't talk about the biopsy until just now, it seems to me that the MRI, the CAT scan, the ultrasound, I mean, you have a whole reservoir of different tests at your fingertips, but it doesn't look like there's any definitive test at this point. Is that true? That's right. I think traditionally people have considered liver biopsy to be a gold standard, but at least for people with Fontan-associated liver disease, that gold standard is probably imperfect. So we still don't know the optimal way to screen for liver disease. Most of us would say that liver biopsy is not something that should be done routinely because we really don't know how to interpret the results or what to do with that information. The centers that are continuing to do liver biopsy generally are doing it as part of a standard regimen. So for example, the single ventricle survivorship program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia They have been doing liver biopsies on every Fontan patient 10 years post-Fontan. And by doing it in a standardized fashion, that does allow us to go back and evaluate that information, and it takes out any potential for selection bias. So we can learn from that whether the Fontan liver biopsy is important. If you just do Fontan liver biopsies when you find abnormalities, it's a little bit more difficult to know how to interpret that information. But again... Given the shortcomings that we know are inherent to the liver biopsy, that's not something that we recommend as a routine method of surveillance. Instead, we focus mostly on doing the blood tests and doing the imaging studies in addition to the usual history and physical. Wow, that was a lot of great information. That concludes this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Come back next week to hear more from Dr. Wu. We're going to talk to Dr. Wu about how his research relates to palliative care for children with complex CHDs. 
You can join us now in our new talk back session immediately following the show on Talk. Just look for the Hug Podcast chat room. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you've been inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart defect community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time. We'll talk again next week. Music.